Welcome to Business Talk, Sister Gok. Today's podcast episode is how to make yourself useful. And today with me, I have a guest whose name is John Cook. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of background. I literally spent probably like 15 minutes thinking about how to introduce you. Wow. <laughs> I couldn't do that. Well, thank you, by the way, for being with me today. Oh, you're most welcome. Yeah. So before we get into this, I just have to describe John. Um, and when I try to describe John to other people, I say things like, well, think about like the wisdom of Yoda and the joy of Rafiki <laughs> all wrapped together in a grandfatherly Vincent Van Gogh style. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I'm supposed to live up to that. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> well, I, I really do think like, so John has owned a number of businesses, is an incredible artist. Um, has been very strategic with living life in joy and just really honestly you've blessed me in that so many times over and um yeah you've done tons of things and we're going to talk a little bit about that today because um i really think a lot of those opportunities just come from making yourself useful so could you start by telling me um what you do well that is really hard to put a ribbon around um i in recent years, I basically just say I work as a self-underemployed designer. And that's <laughs> okay. because there, there really isn't a place, uh, a category that you can go get hired out. And I don't really get hired out. I do projects. Mm -hmm. So project design, project concept, concept development, which can be something little or sometimes something big. But it's basically doing design work and using arts to share it and explain it, show it. Mm -hmm. or, or the spoken word or the written word or whatever it takes to get an idea across to someone else who needs something. Mm -hmm. That's the commercial side of it. The, the non-commercial side of it is you go home and do things you want to do in the way you want to do them. And you don't look at market or is it'll sell or what, you just do what you want to do. So the lifestyle is to be able to live the life doing what you want to do and occasionally you got to pay some bills. <laughs> uh, yes, you have, you have taught me so much about that in so many ways. So um, can we start a little bit back farther about the why? Why do you do what you do and how did you get there? Because I think that's a really interesting story. Oh, really? Um, why I do it or how or both? You can start with the why, yeah. Gosh, I would have to go way back to being a child, kindergarten age. Um, when I was a kid, there was a kindergarten in our town. It was called Happy Corner Kindergarten. And a lady on the corner of a, of a street in a small town, like I think there was 2,500 people in the town, uh, my brother and sister would go to school. I would go to kindergarten. I was probably five years old, four years, five years old. And she had a picket fence that she painted every other picket a different color. Hmm. So it was like a little rainbow around her fence, and I can remember it so clearly. And I went there, and that's where I started learning how to read, mm -hmm. or I thought I was, and how to meet other people and socialize. The next year, I was supposed to go into first grade, and some strange thing happened over the summer. I don't know what it was, because at the end of my fifth year, I was really good at reading. Hmm. When I became six years old and went into first grade, I couldn't read. Huh. I have no idea why, but it was just like it evaporated. It was gone. Interesting. It was really difficult. So. I didn't do well, so they held me back a year, hmm. which put me outside the group that I'd started to grow up with. In that small town, 
the people that you start out in kindergarten with are the ones that you graduate in high school with. Mm -hmm. I went through a school that had, I think we had 62 people in our graduating year, and every one of them had been in every class I'd been in for 12 years. So it's very unusual, but you grow up as a large family. Mm -hmm. And I began to notice that I couldn't do some things they could do. Hmm. They, and they got to things quicker, and they learned things. I didn't know why, I just knew that. So if I have to say why I do what I do, how I do it, it's because you become separated from the group when you can't keep up with what they're doing. You start doing other things or you find another way to do it. Mm -hmm. So in, in, in grammar school and junior high, I would be the kid in the corner facing the back of the room because I just couldn't keep up with the lesson plan and I would become disruptive. But I would sit there and doodle and draw and do my own thing. I'd listen to the stuff. When it come time to take the test, you'd take the tests. And everybody would finish their tests, and I'd be half done because it was a struggle for me to get through it. But I realized that I knew the answer. Mm. I just didn't know how to get it down on paper. Mm -hmm. And I think during these were, that would have been the late 40s. All right? There wasn't ADD. There wasn't you know, reading disability. There wasn't dyslexia. Mm -hmm. there wasn't, those things weren't, you couldn't have those degrees, they hadn't got a name for it, so you didn't get those things. Mm -hmm. And so you don't know that. And I was clear into college before uh, this young student, a psychology student who was studying it, had noticed in a state-run school, they have to let you in whether your grades are good or not, because if you can pay, you can go hmm. in a state-run school. And he decided to test me. Okay. I'd never been tested before that way. You take lots of tests in school. Mm -hmm. uh, and let me go back to like about the, the fifth grade and sixth grade when they started testing students in America to see where you fit, mm -hmm. how you rank with your IQ and with your performance and all that with all the other kids. And of course, um, my testing wasn't any good because I couldn't take tests fast enough. Mm. I began to learn how to answer and do things in a different way. Okay. I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. I didn't know it, but I did. But this college student, he, he alerted me to something. He says, you know, John, he says, you have a learning disability. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He says, yeah. He says, did you know that in college you could take these courses orally? I said, I have no idea. Hmm. And the problem was you go take a test, <clears throat> and they give you 50 minutes or 60 minutes to do a test, and all the other students would be finished and out the room in 35, 40 minutes, and I would be half through my test. Mm -hmm. So I had learned early on in school t to answer every other question, you might get 50%. <laughs> okay. And he noticed in my records that I was getting close to 50%, but I was only answering 50%, so I was getting 100% of what I answered. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a matter of smart, it was a matter of, of being able to interpret at the speed the other students were doing. And I didn't realize I was forming my own language in my own head. I didn't realize I was starting to use pencil work and um, icons to remember things and my own m mnemonics. Mm -hmm. But I was. And when other kids would go play baseball, I had to go to work. We had a, 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 I worked in a laundry with my dad, and he had a steam laundry. So they'd go play, and I would go work. So life was different for me. Mm -hmm. So I was socialized differently, and I think this is probably the difference. But you still want to be a part of the group. So you try to see what people are doing. You try to see how they're doing it. And you, you mimic those behaviors. 
but it's a mimic. It's not a reality. Mm-hmm. You aren't that. Mm. You aren't them. But you have to wor- live in a world that they do. And little by little, uh, you, you build skills. When I was working and they were playing, I was working, I'd, I'd go home and work in the wood shop. I'd go home and work on my artwork. I'd go home and look through the encyclopedia for pictures to trace or to learn. And, and decided really hard to learn how to read like they read. Now, it got to where by the time I was 13 or 14, I could read, just not with any speed. Mm. And not with any confidence that what I was reading was exactly what was written. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, because when you struggle that hard, the comprehension is difficult. Yeah, mm-hmm. you don't know if you're comprehending it or not, or, or if you're comprehending something else out of the reading. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I was in high school before, high school senior, and, and we were in, in an English class, which... Incidentally, I've never passed an English class. <laughs> I, you know, all the way through high school and all the way through college. I, I, it's one of the reasons I couldn't get a, a degree. I couldn't pass an English class. Never, never have. Still haven't. You know, but I realized one day I really don't need to. You know, just like that was what you needed to be one of the group. So your credentials change, your, your goals change, and what you, what you call success or you call success in business or things like that. Um, I probably see it different than most people that what I determine successful is what did I set out to do? Did I achieve it? That makes it a success. Mm-hmm. And somebody else's eyes might not be. Right, right. Yeah, and I just want to clarify too, I know we're, we're talking about many things, but this is going to be a multiple part series for those of you who are listening because um, we've got a lot to get through. If you went to high school in 1940, or well, no, I know, I went elementary. To, uh, elementary, I went to, to, I was born in 43. Okay. okay. So by 47, 48, I was into kindergarten. 49, yeah. I was in first so grade. So we have a lot of conversation with this because I really do think John has so many things he's learned about that usefulness and looking and thinking differently that it's just, it's worth multiple episodes. <laughs> so stick around because this man is a treasure. <laughs> okay. So well, tell me a little bit about as you got into college, how did you start? What was your like first um job outside of like the laundry and how did you do that and why well actually my first job outside of the laundry um, when I was nine working in the laundry there was a resort in Arizona that had opened up 30 miles away on on Colorado River and in the laundry we would during those days I don't know how people are familiar with this or not but laundry was all done at a laundry you didn't have home laundries you didn't have washing machines and dryers in the homes during those days and so a hotel, um, gas stations, hospitals, uh, any, anything that had lots of laundry would send it to the laundry. Mm-hmm. I would work in the laundry, and this laundry would come in, and this stuff was coming in from this resort. Mm-hmm. So when I was about 11, I thought, I would rather work at a resort than work in a steam laundry. Okay. And the guy <laughs> came in one day, and I said, can I go to work at your place? I was like 11, 12 years. He said, you've got to be 14 to do that. I said, oh, okay, I'll let you know when I'm 14. I just figured that he was going to hire me because I asked him. <laughs> so when I turned 14 on my 14th birthday, was, it was in November, I knew that that summer I would be old enough to work at his resort. So I just tacked a message onto his laundry that was shipped 30 miles away, figuring he'd obviously he'd have to read it, right? Because he brought the laundry in, he'd have to take it out. And it took like a month or two for that message to work its way back through. But he came into the laundry and offered to hire me which meant I had to move out of the house and I moved away from home at 14 to go work at a resort. All summer long, I would stay down there, room and board, and Hmm. wash dishes and bus tables and whatever. I spent five years at that resort. 
working that up to boat jockey and working with people and delivery and going to the airport and picking up people. So my job began to meet people from who are going on vacation. All summer long, I would meet people coming there to play. Mm-hmm. Learning how to drive boats and fix boats and work on things. It was a completely different life. Mm-hmm. And there's no way I was ever going to go back and work in laundry. <laughs> people are way more fun than yeah. laundry. Yeah, <laughs> and I thought my, my made my parents happy because I was out of the house. And this is this is one of the stories that probably did change this. I remember my mom telling me when I was about eight years old, well, sweetie, I think you're just probably a late bloomer. And I didn't know what a late bloomer was, but she was helping me to understand I'm just slower at this than other people. Mm -hmm. So I interpreted this, I'm slow. (laughs) (laughs) Internalize that very Sure, see, so you start carrying this burden like, well, I'm slow. Mm -hmm. And so you you begin to live into what you think of yourself. Mm. So when it came to school and and things like that, academia, uh, I just didn't really think of myself as a student. Mm-hmm. And yet, I really loved the information. When I hear it in class, I would remember it. Mm-hmm. Now, things like math and, and English and science, where you had to do lots of note-taking, you had to, have, you had to capture the information going by, I didn't capture it very well. Mm-hmm. But the things that I could do graphically or visually, mm-hmm. I captured. Mm-hmm. So I think I just grew into uh, what my, whatever my talent was to do the art, the design, and, and to be able to communicate that on a different level than most people, because most people weren't doing that. Mm-hmm. And that began to build the basis of it. So I think that the other jobs were, when I went off to college thinking, well, I'm gonna go be a college guy. I didn't know at that time that the way the grade system worked, because in high school, you get a one, two, or three, or a four in your grades. Mm. And so at that time in our hometown, if you got a one, that was a top student. Four was failing. Mm-hmm. In college, it was just the opposite. If you got a one, you're failing. You had to have a 4.0 grade average to be mm-hmm. on top. Mm-hmm. So when I was getting all ones in college, I thought I was really doing pretty good. <laughs> Look like, at this. I have hot I, stuff. I can ace this. This is no problem. <laughs> and that's what happened. So I didn't even realize till this student told me, you've got a problem. Because mm-hmm. I wasn't seeing the world like other people see it. Mm-hmm. So those, and so I was, you know, busing and waiting tables and working my way through college, just getting jobs, I do odd jobs. I worked at a lumber mill, I worked in a little bit of a truck driving, I'd shovel snow off roofs, whatever. You know, I just, nothing bothered me, just do what you can do. And, and uh, keep paying your bills, keep going to school, keep uh, having fun. But I, what I wanted to do was go to art school. Mm-hmm. Now, back in those days, uh, this would be the uncolorful part of it, that today you probably couldn't get away with saying this, but my parents were very prejudiced against the art world because those were the funny people. Hmm. They were, you know, not well rooted in their minds. They were just, because back in the 40s and 50s, artists were basically thought of as... as, uh, Homeless or something? Well, you just think up your own names for it. But unless you're a top artist, there's no place for you in the world. So my dad said, why don't you go go be an architect or, or go be an engineer or go be something else. So the pressure was always there. And growing up, I'd always have to hide my artwork because it irritated my parents. Oh, weird. <clears throat> Interesting. So I would hide it in the bottom drawer. My sister would buy me art supplies secretly, and my mom would appreciate my art, but my dad was, I would hide it from him. Mm. So it was like, um, just didn't feel open about it. And I was well into college before I thought, you know, I, I see these other artists doing stuff. I, I want to go do that. I want to go play with the clay. I want to do these things. 
And I experimented with it, but in secret, more or less in secret. So those things have an effect on, on how you see yourself, mm. how you think your parents see you, how you think your group sees you. And that social pressure, you don't break it until you escape it. Most of the people that I had known who were similar, they escaped it through drugs or alcohol or misbehavior, or they just became what my dad thought artists would become. And you mm -hmm. see a lot of that, and I think it's because uh, we, don't, we didn't have the skills, we don't know the skills, and now, they're, now the world is overskilled in trying to over-treat and over-project and over-analyze everything. And so for people who want to think differently or be different, there's really not a safe zone to go to. I was probably lucky in the fact that most people just ignored me. This, the teachers, the schools, my parents, other people just like, you know, I mean, I was, a, I was a good kid. I wasn't trying to make trouble. I wasn't a troublemaker. I wasn't looking to be grievous. But um, I, I know that in this college um, test they gave me, this young man, a bright young fellow, and he says, I'm going to look up your records, John. I said, okay. So he looked up my records and he showed me, he says, he says, you, you aced all the IQ stuff. You did really great. The performance testing, you're a total disaster in. He says, but there's also all kinds of notes that, was, went, that followed you from the time you were in first grade till the time you, till now. He says, teachers would pass off these notes to each other. Well, this student is this, this student that. And they, they form these opinions and they write these notes and pass it to the next teacher. Mm -hmm. So he says, you have been, you have been traveling with a misnomer about you, who you are, what you are. He says, so the teachers would get this, say, oh, this guy, he, he's not going to get the grades. Don't waste any time on him. Put him in the corner. Hmm. And I says, you mean they do that? He says, well, it looks, apparently this is what happens. He says, we've got marks here, like, um, here's the top students, here's the middle students, here's the bottom students, and, and over here is like three or four students going through. They, well, don't spend any resources on them. Don't take your time with these kids. It's not going to pay off. Just tolerate them and get them on through. Oh, man. And so I said, so how about in high school? He said, yeah, I said, there's a footnote here in high school. Like, just get him out of school. Mm. So, and I'll, that just, like, historically, like, speaks so much to the reason why we have special education and everything like that, Well, too. it is. And, and I, I'm sorry, I'm, like, such a history, yeah. like, well, this is that way. It was exactly it. And I didn't know that I was a victim of this. But I, when I look back in my memory now, I can see it. I began to see it that day. On that day, um, when I was like, I think I was a sophomore going into junior year, into the sophomore, and they were trying to determine if they were going to talk me out of going to school because I just wasn't a good student. Mm -hmm. And so they tested me, which they didn't very often do. Mm -hmm. But he said he couldn't justify passing on having me just not come to school anymore. He says, because you have very, you have this, this IQ thing over here, mm -hmm. completely unbalances all these other things. He says, this, these two shouldn't be the same. Mm-hmm. Most of the people over here don't have a high IQ score. They have a very low one or, or a mediocre one to go with all their bad behavior. He mm -hmm. says, yours is a total anomaly in the way that they work together. And he says, so you don't have a problem understanding things. You have a problem expressing them and reading them at, at, at when they come in. This is slow reader. Now, I would tell you this story about slow reader. Here's kind of what actually happened. Uh, when I was 12, my mom gave me a Bible. She gave my sister one when she was 12, and she gave my older brother one when he was 12. And she says, I expect you to read this. 
I'm going, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Very high reading level. It's, it's shed on, it sat on my uh, shelf for two years. And then I thought, well, okay, now I'm 14. I'm going to do this. I'm going to try this. I thought, I'm just going to start at the first. I'm going to work my way through. And anything I don't understand, I'll look up. I could read, but not well. Not, mm -hmm. It didn't flow. But to my surprise, I could read that. It just was easy. Hmm. So I read right through it. it. took me about six months, but I read all the way through the Bible, all the way, front to back. Didn't miss a word. Didn't understand it, but I could read it. Hmm. And I realized that, that oh, it's... Is it structured? Is the way the words are placed in there? Is it because they do things kind of backwards from normal print? Sorry about the noise. <laughs> and I, I couldn't break it up, but I was curious about it. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that, you know, kind of like old English or whatever, and it was a translation. And I became curious about the stories, about the things in it, about the things I'd heard, and realized that <clears throat> in my walk, walk around world, my walk a day world, that the people around me who had read many, many things had not read that book. Because it, came, it, it contained the knowledge of how and who and what the world is about, which is what I was really interested in. What's this all about? How Interesting. Does th how do things work? Why is this this way? And I realized that the people that I was looking at with more or less admiration for their skills and living just didn't absorb that. Why not? So tell me a little bit about, like, I know we are kind of running short on time, so I'm going to go um, a little bit farther into the gawk portion with this, and then we're going to come back to this conversation um, because I want to I wanna make sure to keep going through, like, that usefulness because I've heard a lot about your, your early jobs or just doing all these things because, okay, just needed to make money and all of that. But um, tell me a little bit about, and, and for those of you listening, you don't know this, but I do, that um, John used to be a Disney Imagineer. And he had a presentation that he gave to get the job. And I want to do that as a gawk portion because I think it's a really interesting story. <laughs> and I know it's skipping a little bit ahead. But can you tell me, tell me about that experience and what you learned through it? What the experience was? Well, okay. Uh, when I was 11, I wrote a letter to Walt Disney. I wanted to go to work as an animator. I knew I liked the arts. And I got a letter back from Madeline Wheeler, who was his secretary at that time. She says, grow up, get an education, and come, come apply again. Oh, motivation. Yeah. <laughs> and it stuck with okay. me. So, so I wrote back another letter about three months later, four months later. You know, I, and I wrote three letters to, to Disney, and I got three answers from his secretary, all of which I still have somewhere. Okay. And when my wow. mother got when my mother got the mail, she says, "Are you writing to Walt Disney?" I said, "Yeah." She says, "What for?" I said, "Because I want to go to work there." Well, when I became an adult, and when I w was able to have, should we say, busted my first major business and changed professions, I decided I'm going to see if I can go to work for Disney. Now, at that time, I was 30 years old. Okay. Okay. By that time, you jump ahead. So I applied at Disney, and at that time, they had a, a law that you they couldn't refuse you the interviews. They could just tell you they're not going to hire you. So they called me in. They said, John, we have to give you the interview. We have to do it whether you're old or young, <laughs> black or white, he's dumb or smart. He says, we have to give you the interview. But I'll tell you right now, you don't have the credentials to get hired. But we'll give you the interview. I says, well, at least I'll have that experience. I'll take the interview. They set me up. I went to an appointment. I, I took the job. And at that time, they were trying to hire 24 new people to go into the Imagineering department. 
Mm -hmm. And they had hired 22 already, and there was two more to go. Okay. Okay. And the last, in, in, in the interviews, they had interviewed 96,000 people for those two jobs. That is so, so many yeah. jobs. Now, I, got, I might have the numbers wrong. It might have been 96,000 for the 24. Okay. But I remembered it this way. This way I remembered yeah, it. So this way. is, this is my truth. Whether it's the truth or not, this is my truth on it. Okay. And so then I went home happy that I'd had the interview. Well, before the interview, they said, I said, what do you want me to do? I said, well, bring in a portfolio. I says, well, I've never seen a portfolio. What, what is a port what's expected in a portfolio? And the guy just drew his breath. Oh, you got to be kidding. I says, no. I, he says, look, he says, you're not going to get the job anyway. He says, but here's what you do. He says, just get a cardboard box and throw some of the things in it that you've done mm. and bring it in. I thought, oh, well, okay. You know, that's just, I was like dumb and dumber. Oh, so there's a chance? <laughs> <laughs> you're like, deal, I'm oh, going for boy, it. Boy, I'm going for it. I'm one in a million, but I'm going to go for it. So I went around the house and I collected up a bunch of things that I had made, stuck them in the box, put them on my arm, and headed for Disney, right? I didn't live in there then. I lived quite a ways. So I was 200 miles away, 300 miles away at the time. Anyway, I went down there and took my box in, and they're chattering and going through the box, and I was explaining what I did. And I'd been in the movies by that time. I'd worked for Jim Henson by that time. I'd worked on the Muppets by that time. So I had little things from, from all the things I'd done. What happened was they, they said, oh, thank you very much for coming in, and sent me home. Two days later, I got a notice to come back in. They interviewed me again. The requirements were you had to have a master's, a bachelor's, or a doctorate, a four-year degree in college, hmm. and, or, and or qualifications as a professional 10 years in a field, which I had none of, and, and good <laughs> grades. You know, yeah. I, I had this yeah. one-point average. I'd had five years in college and not graduated. I'd changed majors every single year. But you also had to have handle in, hand in papers of recommendation. Mm. I think it was like five or six sources. So they asked me for those, so I sent people that I'd known, that I'd worked for, to send a recommendation to Disney. And they said, we got all your stuff back, and he says, we want to hire you. I says, why? I met none of your criteria, <laughs> zero. And they said, well, you met the one criteria that we're trying to fill. He says, you've been working as what we call a, a design-build fabricator. I said, yeah. I says, I design stuff, and then I go build it. He says, we don't have any of those. Hmm. He's not, not like you, not like what you're doing. He says, we have people design, we have people draw, we have people that build. There are very few people who can design something and go build the whole thing, including houses and buildings and structures or boats or whatever. Mm. You design, you go build. Mm -hmm. I said, mm -hmm. yeah. And he says, and your portfolio shows us you are doing a lot of things that we don't know how to do. Mm. He says, we don't hire people to train to do what we do. We hire people who can teach us things that they know that we don't. So we don't need the other qualifications from you. We've got 96,000 of those who have all the qualifications but can't do what you do out of the box. You have the box with no qualifications. You're the one we want to hire. I said, so the qualifications don't really count. He says, well, it's a gate. Mm. It's, it's the mask we wear. He says, we're looking for the talent we're looking for. The qualifications helps us get the list down to a few people that might fall through the cracks like you. Hmm. He says, because you don't know the difference from what we're asking for, you fell through the cracks. Well, and, and did they, they I told me to this remember, almost those words. I seem to remember this in our conversation before, but did they know that you wrote letters to Disney as well when you were little? No, they didn't. Oh, okay. They, when they, when they went into their archives, they found them. Okay. Huh. Mm -hmm. That's, 
Yeah. So, so then, cool. They said, they said, you've been at this for 25 years. I said, I have. So you've been trying to get in here for 25 years. I had applied there a dozen different times, you know, but mm. I never got an interview until they changed the laws where they had to take the interview. That's and, such an interesting yeah. story. And, oh. and so it's like, so here's what, what I tell people today is don't say no for someone else. Say yes for yourself. Mm. Never answer for the other person. Especially if you're a person who's gone through a, a learning curve like I've gone through. If you answer for somebody else, you're going to say no because you don't think you can. Mm -hmm. I was taught that I don't fit. I was taught that I can't do this. I was taught these things. Yet when I was there, I wound up trying to teach people how to do things. And you have told me that many times and I'm never, just remembering never, it now. Never say no for the other person. Say yes for mm. yourself. Well, th I, I do have to wrap this up this week. But if you have enjoyed this conversation, you should come back next week because we're still talking about how to make yourself useful. This is part one with John Cook. And we will see you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, you can give it a review on Spotify now, Business Talk Sister Gok, and I'm looking forward to next week with you, John. Thank you for being here. And thank you for having me.